Can somebody grab me a water, a cold water preferably? Somebody can grab me a cold water. I would appreciate it. If you are in the hallway, Time to listen to something from Yahweh. Stop trying to do it Yahweh. All right. We have a lot to discuss this morning as we are in the tail end of a, thank you, as we are in the tail end of a series called The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible that began in September and that concludes two weeks from today. And today's topic is one of a controversial nature because when it comes to spiritual warfare, a question that gets asked often is, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Many believers say no, they've never seen that. And they say, how can the Holy Spirit be in a person and the demon also be in them? It's a good answer. But many people say, yes, a Christian can be possessed by a demon because they've seen it. They've seen deliverance ministries. They've been a part of these things where professing Christians are getting hands laid on them and prayed for, and demons are being cast out. And they would say, the Bible is filled with stories of people who needed demons to be cast out of them. And so the church, in many ways, I think, is split on the issue. Depending on what your denomination or theological background is, you're going to answer yes or no to the question, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? The problem is most people evaluate this question of demonic possession based on their experiences, not the Bible. One of the greatest gifts and curses that have come to church as it relates to spiritual warfare is experience. Experience is a gift because it helps us understand how to apply the things that we read in the scriptures. But experience is a curse because we can make our experiences equivalent to or greater than what the Bible actually says, which often makes us use our experiences to evaluate the Bible rather than the Bible evaluate our experiences. I see this happen, especially in this area as it relates to things of the spirit, often. My experience of what happened or what I saw is more real than anything the Bible says. And I will find verses, if possible, to prove that my experience is accurate. We do this all the time, even with things that are not related to spiritual warfare. Case in point. Parenting is one of the biggest responsibilities that any human being has. 
any human being. And the Bible actually has, as it relates to the role of parenting, 10 verses. 10 verses. And two of the 10 are in 1 Timothy that talk about pastors, elders, they should be qualified because their children are somewhat obedient. So apart from that, there are eight verses that talk about parenting. Not children. Children are a heritage from the Lord. It's not a passage about parenting. So I'm not talking about passages that mention children, but passages that actually command the responsibility of parents is between 8 to 10. Let me just read one or two of them. Some of these are popular from Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rod, Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not... Provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These are passages that have nothing to do with spiritual warfare, and based on our experience, we either will obey them or not. So the Bible does talk about if you do not physically discipline your child, it says whoever spares the rod hates his son. But there are people in this room and who are watching online who say we do not physically spank our children for whatever reason. That's your decision. My point is we evaluate our experiences all the time and we make decisions based on our experiences that often contradict what the Bible seems to be clearly saying and spiritual warfare is no different. It's no different. There are books that are Old Testament thick about parenting. And there are eight verses in the Bible that talk about parenting. So what is the 226 pages for? It's experience. It's experience. Another challenge to understanding a proper way to view demonic possession is the reality in our day and age of the genre of demonic movies. Mm -hmm. Demonic movies. You see a trailer. I remember when I saw the trailer for The Pope's Exorcist. I saw this trailer, and to be honest, I was like, hey, that joint looks all right. I don't even watch movies like, like that as much anymore, but I was like, man, I might have to go see that. When the demon-possessed boy was like, bring the priest. And a priest came in, and he slammed him against the wall. The other priest. I was like, oh, I want to see that. I want to see that. These movies give the impression that demonic powers are both all-powerful and that they want to be known. They want to be known and take over the world. That is contrary to biblical evidence. Now, we do see in some cases demons act out, but in almost every one of those cases, Jesus has shown up. When Jesus shows up, not only do they act out, but they're also begging to not be cast out. They're identifying who he is, calling him. We know who you are, son of God. 
He's rebuking them, telling them to be quiet. Because people aren't going to find out who I am from you. But it doesn't mean that everyone knew that a person had a demon in them. When people come to Jesus, it's clear. Some people had categories. Their child or someone is possessed. But often it would have looked normal. Matthew 4, 24 they describe it like this and just see one of these broad terms. Here's what it says. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. But there's cases when epileptic seizures are demonic, when he casts a demon out of him for what we would just call an epileptic seizure. Matthew 8, 16 that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Acts 5, 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. We read these and think, whoa, it must have been crazy back then. It must have been like the Pope's exorcists, people just walking around demonic. But remember that the scriptures are written in hindsight. They weren't writing it down as it happened. They're thinking back some 30, 40 years later with the, with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit has given them, oh, this is what was happening. It's not clear if everyone was just walking around where demons were just trying to be known. They didn't want to be cast out. But when Jesus shows up, you just can't hide. Demonic movies have convinced us of what demonic possession looks like, and often we don't see anybody like that. So we just think, well, that's not it. Another issue that makes understanding demonic possession and its influence, if any, on us is the categories of possession and oppression. So here's what, here is the, the sort of mainline argument for demonic influence on Christians that most believers have agreed on. Here's the argument. It goes something like this. A demon cannot possess a Christian, but it can oppress them. That's a good argument. It's a common argument. Demons can't possess you because you have the Holy Spirit in you, but it can oppress you. Right? So possession means to be controlled where demons inside of you. This is how most people think. Obsession means to be attacked or influenced or to have demons around you. So that's the argument. Demons cannot possess you, but they can oppress you. Here's the problem with that argument, though, biblically speaking. The word oppressed in the Greek is syneko, and it means to seize. The word oppressed, possessed, is echo, and it means to have. So, so far, those sound like two good categories. Okay, a demon can oppress you. It can seize you. It can stop you. It can press hard against you. It can crowd you. It can distress you. It can torment you. These are the definitions for the Greek word that I'm reading. It can hold you. It can enclose you. It can distress you. It can restrain you. Okay? And possess is to have own, 
have as, hold to, have on, wear, be able, consider, possess, hold on to. When you use those words in isolation, they're different words. And it makes sense. Okay, you can be seized, you can be. The problem is, in the Bible, at least in the translation that I use the most, ESV, the terms possession and obsession are not separated from the suffix hyphenated word demonic. So it doesn't just, it doesn't often say oppressed or possessed. It'll say demonic possession, demonic hyphen possession, demonic hyphen obsession, oppression. That's how it was listed in the Bible. Case in point, Matthew 12, 12. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, in my, the translation I use, demon was a hyphen oppressed. Demon-oppressed man. Making sure that you know the oppression is demonic. Matthew 5, 15. Oh, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark 5, 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Demon-possessed man. The one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. When the word demon is before oppressed and possessed, it's translated as the same Greek word. The original language, the Greek, does not make a distinction between oppressed and possessed when demon is in front of it. It's translated as the same Greek word, daimon zomozai, and it means to be possessed by a demon. It's the same word. The Bible does not have the category of demons oppressing versus demons possessing. In the scriptures, in the original language, that term is the same term. It means the same thing. And then you add this caveat to the problem. Both demon oppressed and demon possessed needed to be cast out. It says they cast out the demon possessed, man, cast out a demon oppressed person. So if you're going to make the category Christians can be possessed, but not possessed but oppressed, biblically speaking, that's still a demon that needs to be cast out. So that may make us feel comfortable in the way we see it, but it wouldn't be biblically faithful. It wouldn't be exegetically accurate. So you can hold those two terms, but those categories more make us comfortable in our minds than they are biblical reality. One more challenge to understanding if Believers can be possessed by demons, and what that looks like and what, is there in, what does that mean is what Jesus said to Peter in Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31, here's what happens. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, you've heard me say this before multiple times. We have no exegetical evidence that Satan literally entered Peter like he did Judas. But Jesus calls what Peter just did satanic, calling him Satan himself. So what is happening here? What do we take from this principally? Peter's motive was not sinful. I don't think it was careful. He loves the Lord. The thought of the Lord dying. Peter's not just rebuking Jesus for anything he says. He's saying, no, 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 Lord, no. I don't want you to die. Like, no. Peter's motive is out of love for Jesus. But Jesus still says, that's satanic. So even when your motive is to love God, but your actions contradict what the Bible says, you are acting and thinking satanic. This is what Jesus said. From God's perspective, it's satanic to even think in ways that oppose the will of God, whether you know it or don't know it. Jesus knew that Peter wasn't trying to stop him from doing the will of God. He knew that Peter loved him, but he was making a point that so that Peter and all those who belong to Jesus that would read the Bible would understand that if you are outside of the will of God, even in your thinking, that is satanic. And the point is this. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is what you want, not what God wants. This is what you think, not what God thinks. This is what you say, not what God says. Let's apply this logic to what we heard last week on the gifts of the Spirit. You can have the gifts of the Spirit and use them in a way that is not what God said or is not really from God and you would be satanic in the way you're using the gifts of the spirit. If you can think something that you think honors the Lord and be wrong and it's satanic, then you can have a view of the gifts, use those gifts in a way that is not what the Bible said, that is not how the Bible wants them used and you would be satanic in the way you use them. Because you are, you are using them in a way that has the things of man in mind instead of God. And I would say, in my limited experience, this is the primary way and what happens to a lot of churches, Christians, who talk, use gifts, and act as if God is always doing it because there's some kind of manifestation of the Spirit. If you explain the gifts of the Spirit and use them in a way outside of what God said, it's satanic. And if you do that long enough, guess what? You're actually honoring Satan instead of the Lord. And then if you take Romans 11:29. Where it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
if the word gifts here includes supernatural gifts, then principally, God isn't saying he's taking them away once he's given them to you. And Corinth is an example. That book is 97% corrective for the way that they're living, and they had all of the gifts of the Spirit in function. And God didn't take the gifts necessarily. And this is where we get confused. So let me say one thing about what I believe is true of God that we think, oh, no. God isn't in heaven worried about someone using the gifts or someone teaching inaccurately people, leading them astray and thinking, oh, no, they're not going to. My glory's at stake. <laughs> the Lord glory is not connected to our obedience. It's connected to his identity. Our obedience glorifies the Lord, but the Lord's glory was there long before we ever existed and would be there if none of us ever existed. So the Lord is not looking at someone misusing the gifts leading people astray and thinking, oh, no, people are not going to believe in me because these people are. Everyone that's supposed to believe in the Lord will. Everyone will. He's not worried. So when we think, well, how can someone have the gifts and do this and why would? Because God is not worried. Remember, he told the people that the Pharisees in Matthew 23, they sit on Moses' seat. So listen to what they say, but don't follow their example because they're hypocrites. And he walked you down. Why not to be like them? All of chapter 23 is woe to you Pharisees. So think about what God is saying. They have the knowledge of the Mosaic law. They have the gift of the teaching, and I'm going to use it. But when they stand before me, they're not going to make it. So I will use whatever I've given in a person. And my personal belief, I can't prove this from Scripture. This is my personal belief. I think people, God not taking some of the gifts from people who use them in satanic ways will actually be the indictment that judges them. Because God will say, you knew I was real. Because I let you prophesy. You knew I was real because I let you speak in tongues. You knew I was real because I gave you a word of knowledge. So your rejection of me is on par with the angels who saw me face to face. You knew it was real, and you rejected me. Therefore, depart from me. I don't know you. So where does all this leave us? Can a Christian be possessed by a demon or not? I'm going to change the question because asking if a Christian can be possessed by a demon, I don't think is a helpful question. I don't think it's a helpful question. If for no other reason, because nowhere in the New Testament letters to the churches are we commanded to cast demons out of one another. You will not find a verse in a credible Bible translation that tells you to cast demons out of one another. Doesn't mean that we can't. It just means it is not a statement 
for ongoing Christians. All of the emphasis on sin and disobedience, biblically speaking, is on the individual and their responsibility to God. So here's the question that we're going to ask today. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? I think it's an unhelpful question. I think it's misleading. Here's what we're going to ask today. What is the relationship? What is the relationship between cosmic powers of darkness and the Christian? And what influence, if any, do demons have over us? What is the relationship between cosmic powers of darkness and the Christian? And what influence, if any, do demons have over us? This is what I'm asking and trying to answer today. So let's do a brief treatise on what the New Testament says about Satan's and demons in relation to their, their interaction with us. There's not as many verses as you think well, we're going to look at every single one of them. Beginning in Romans 16, 20. Here's how he's ending the letter to the church in Rome. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. So we know that Jesus said in John 12, now this world will be judged and the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus said, when I die on the cross, Satan will be cast out. But Romans, post-resurrection, post-crucifixion, says here, the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. So he is not crushed. He's not crushed, at least as of this. And I think he's not crushed as we look around our society. That's a different conversation. I don't want that this morning. We just staying textual today. First Corinthians, three verses. First Corinthians 5.5. 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is talking to the Corinthians who are allowing a man in the church to sin in scandalous ways, and everyone knows it. They all see it. And he's saying, deliver him over to Satan. In other words, take away from him the fellowship. He is no longer allowed to have community with the church. Give him over to Satan but the hope is that he'll realize, oh, what have I done, and then come back. So his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Do not provide, pro, deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here Paul is giving instruction to husbands and wives and saying, do not deprive sexual intimacy together unless you agree to do so for a time of prayer. Because if you do that, if you deprive each other, if you are not intimate with one another, Satan may tempt you. I'm not causing no problems for the couples. <laughs> this is what the Bible says. Thus says the Lord. But I would say, there's never a counseling situation that I've been in where people are struggling in their marriage and they have wonderful intimacy or in sexual relationship. 
I haven't seen it in 15 years of being a pastor here. But y'all don't want that smoke today. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 10, 20, 21. No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So here Paul is telling them, listen, you're surrounded around idolatry. Stop joining these people in idolatry. These people, when they do their little, their little festivals, they offer things to demons. You can't participate in that. So he's saying it's possible for you to participate in people's enjoyment of demons. Saying don't do that. You, you can't do that. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. Two verses in 2 Corinthians. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. So Paul is saying, talking to them, and he's telling them about the guy that I just talked about in 1 Corinthians that needed to be cast out. Many theologians think that he's saying, you got to forgive this guy. Forgive him and restore him to fellowship. He's repenting now. Forgive him, because if you don't, you'll discourage him. And he connects forgiveness says, we forgive him, and he says, because we're not going to be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his designs. So in this context, Paul is saying unforgiveness towards other people is a design by Satan. And he's saying, you can go read the whole, if you want, not right now, because we're working. <laughs> but he's saying unforgiveness is being outwitted by Satan. If you're unforgiving people, Satan has you. It's a design of his that you don't forgive. And of course it would be, right? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And he says this, and no wonder, we're going to get into this passage in, in detail in a minute. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So light just means an angel of righteousness. So even Satan pretends like, disguises himself as an angel of light, as an angel of righteousness. Disguises himself. But you have to know what the Bible says about these things to know the difference. And in the culture, we have a category called love is love. Love is love. Any love goes as long as there's affection between two people. That is unbiblical. Love can be hate if you do it in a way outside of how God describes it. Ephesians, two verses. Ephesians 4, 27. And he just says, and give no opportunity to the devil. So he's saying that the devil is looking for opportunities from believers, and he's telling you, do not give an opportunity to him by your disobedience, by your character. The devil is looking for opportunities to hinder believers. Don't give him one. If he says, and give no opportunity, guess what it means? you can give an opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. This is where we're going to be the next two weeks in conclusion of this series. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, you need to put on the armor of God to withstand the schemes of the devil. There are schemes of the devil that he's trying to trip us up in. 
And we get deceived into thinking that this stuff is just like the movies, and so we don't see that. But unforgiveness even, wrong thinking even is satanic. Not having sex with your spouse gives the devil a foothold. These things that we just normally choose to do or not to do, from the Bible's perspective, give opportunity to the devil. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He doesn't really say how in this verse, but Satan, Paul is saying, for, to us, Paul is the most powerful man in the New Testament. To us. We think like Paul because it's like Superman all this time. <laughs> Casting demons out, doing this, doing that, bringing people back. We were joking about this yesterday. Paul was preaching a long sermon in Acts, and a dude was sitting in the window, and he just got tired of that word and fell asleep and, kid and died, fell out the window. <laughs> if one of y'all died during a sermon, I might step down. All this time. I might be like, golly. The enemy is like, it's that, that's it for me. The Lord is like, bro, your preacher's supposed to bring life. People dying in this joint. I might be like, hey, I appreciate y'all. It's been a good 15 years. I'm out. May the Lord provide you. Paul went and brought this man back from the dead. I, I, you better have, Paul. It was your sermon that killed him. Second Thessalonians 2, 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders. So Satan has power, signs, and false wonders. Stuff that we're so drawn to. Oh man, look, he did this, he did this, he can do this. Somebody sent me a video. I think it was Warren sent me this video. Of It was in a real big charismatic church. And the dude was just walking past people. They started shaking and jumping around. And then he ran past them and they all, people fell over and all this stuff. And I said, man, I wasn't there. But I wonder how many of those people, how many of those people think more highly of Jesus because of that? Because Jesus said in John 16, the spirit's primary role is to testify about me. So how does shaking and falling out testify about God at all? Maybe it does. I wasn't there. But when I saw that, I was like, man, that's the type of stuff I saw the other time. I was like, Lord, I don't want to do that. I pray like, Lord, I don't ever want to do that. Because I didn't think it was real. Satan has power, false signs and wonders and will deceive many people. 1 Timothy 3 talks about the qualifications for an elder. He must be, not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So he's saying don't even promote people to an authoritative position in the church before you see character clearly because they can be under the condemnation of the devil. It's a scary thought. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Now, you can't depart from the faith unless you have the faith. So he's talking about Christians. He's saying there's going to come a day 
when Christians will leave the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Now, if you theologically believe, like I do, that upon conversion, and depending on your understanding of the order of salvation, the order of salutis, then you might, the spirit might inhabit you slightly before you make the confession, depending on where you're at and your view of how salvation occurs. But at very least, people have the spirit in a general way after becoming a Christian. So Paul is saying people who have the spirit after becoming a Christian are going to depart from the faith and devote themselves to other spirits and teaching of demons. Feel free to go back and look at any of these, check your commentaries, whatever you need to do. This is just what this word is saying. 2 Timothy 2.26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And this he's talking to mainly elders saying, you, you, you got to be patient when you're going back and forth with non-Christians. Because they have been captured by the devil to do his will. All children are not God's children. All people are not God's people. It says the devil has captured people to do his will. And the will is not what we see in the movies. The will is morality apart from faith in Jesus. As long as you don't believe in Jesus. I've said this before in a previous message. Just about every, if, if Christianity is the true religion, which I believe it is, because there's no other religion that can legitimately say that the God of that faith became a human being. And there's record of Jesus coming, dying, and resurrecting on his own. There's historical record. If that were not true, they would have been called that out so long ago. The reason why we still have these conversations is because they can't prove it. You can't find the bones. But in this context... This comment, he's saying that people have been captured by the devil to do his will. And you have to interact with them a certain way. Because God may give them repentance. So all the being offended at non-Christians, all the judging them for the stuff they do. I watch a lot of, Chris, I got a lot of friends who are Christian influencers always making YouTube videos about what Beyonce and these people are doing, they worship witchcraft, all this stuff. And it's like, well, why wouldn't they? Why are we surprised by that? And if you start sowing and you're thinking and acting in a demonic way, well, why should we be surprised by that? They need to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14, since therefore the children, believers, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Satan has the power of death. Because death is the result of sin, and he is the first to commit it. So he's the power over death. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So two verses saying, resist, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Be watchful, sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So not being sober-minded and not being watchful means you're not paying attention to the devil who's looking for someone like you to devour. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So guess what that means? If you do not resist the devil, then he does not flee from you. First John gives the strongest argument against demon possession in a Christian. The strongest argument against the possibility because of what he says. First John 3.8. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. This is where Christians get concerned. I still sin. What does this mean? Let's keep going. First John 3.10. By this, it is evident who, the children, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Listen to that. You know how many Christians I met that will say, I'm never going to forgive, or I hate this Christian, or I hate this. I'm talking about fellow believers. First John says, you are of the devil if you hate other Christians. You are of the devil. First John 4.20 says, you cannot love God whom you haven't seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen. This is who we know who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is from the devil. The key word is practice. Practice. When you practice something, you are trying to get good at it. You are doing it so that you get better at it. There's nothing that anyone practices that you don't improve in. So the key word here is practice. He's not talking about Christians who struggle, who cry, who confess to other people that they failed. Right? We can be faithless, but he remains faithful. He's talking about people who practice, who do not show conviction, who do not mind sinning, who disregard it. If that is you, the scripture says you belong to the devil. And you can start off not belonging to the devil and eventually give yourself over to him by your attitudes and actions. First John 4, 1 through 6, strongest passage against demonic possession. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, them being those spirits. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let me make sure you understand what he's saying here. Because he's not saying whoever says the words Jesus Christ is the son of God means it's legitimate. We saw on multiple occasions in the Gospels that they were the ones saying who Jesus was before other people knew who he was. Multiple versions of, of, of different translations say, they said, we know who you are, son of God. And he rebuked them. James 2, 19 says, you believe in one God? Good, even the demons believe and are afraid. John is not saying anyone who agrees that Jesus is the son of God is of the spirit. He's talking about people who genuinely believe that and live for that. You don't do that unless that's not the demons don't want you to obey God. The spirit of the Antichrist is not trying to get you to disobey God. So when there's a genuine heartfelt belief that Jesus is the son of God, that does not come from demons. That's what he's saying. And he said, that spirit that's in you is greater than the spirit that is in the world. Lastly, in John, 1 John 5, 8, 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he was born of God, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So here what he's saying is, look, People who are born of God will not keep on sinning against God. In other words, people who are genuine believers are going to take their sin seriously. And I think for our sake, I know there are people here not members of the church, welcome. But for those of us who are members, we need to be careful and not make excuses for people that they're just going through something, or this is just their personality, or this is this. That's fear of man. That could be true, but over a prolonged period of time, that's not just who you are. It's who you belong to. We need to start evaluating people's actions by who they belong to, who they're demonstrating, and not just that's who they are. But that's not today's message. The worst thing believers should believe is that because we're believers, Satan doesn't mess with us. Remember this in Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18, when he said, when, when Jesus said, hey, who do the people say that I am? And they said, the prophet, Elijah. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are Jesus, son of God. And this is what Jesus says. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The phrase, prevail against it, is Jesus saying, that's what the gates of hell are trying to do, prevail against the church. If you are a Christian and in the church, then you are Satan's target. Unbelievers are not his target. 
because he already has them. The church is the target. Keep in mind that John's emphasis on who the, son of, the sons of God are and the sons of Satan are are those who are practicing sinning. So what is the relationship between cosmic powers of darkness and the Christian and what influence, if any, do demons have over us? We just ran through all of the passages that highlight that at the very least, the very least, there is a war going on. There are Satan, demons, are out to target and attack Christians to make them depart from the faith and so forth. And we can willingly do that by our lack of diligence and not being sober-minded in our faith. At the very least, there's a war going on whether you feel like it or not. So now let's really try to answer the question. First passage to consider, 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to what Paul says. This is an important argument that Paul is making. Brief context. Paul, in this chapter, in the chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he is, well, mostly this whole book, to be honest, but these two chapters, Paul is pushing back against other people who were claiming to be apostles and saying he's not one. So he is defending his ministry in chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Corinthians. He's proving that he's an apostle, a real apostle, and they're not. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 1 to 15. I wish you would bear with me with a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Remember I told you he pastored this church. He planted it and was there 18 months. Paul wasn't there. Any other church, he was never there this long. Some churches he, didn't even, he hadn't even been to yet. His letters were saying, I'm coming to see you. I don't know you yet, but I've heard about you. But Corinth, he put some time in. He said, verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus from the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Here's a shock. Most of us wouldn't say that. Paul, part of the reason why they're attacking him is because he's not that good of an orator. He's not that great of a public speaker. So he says, yeah, even though I'm, I don't speak as strongly as they do, I have more knowledge than them, though. That's a shock to us because we think Paul was just walking around like, hey, listen up. And everybody, whoa, it's Paul. Yeah. Paul's saying, look, I'm not that good at speaking. He sounds like Moses. Uh -huh. Well, I'm not good at speaking. All right, get Aaron then. God was like, I'm getting tired. Moses, get Aaron. Stop playing, man. Get Moses. <laughs> Verse 7. God didn't say that. That's in the ghetto translation. All right. 
in a gangster translation. Or did I commit, verse 7, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted before I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone for the, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from, from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, I, I, I didn't even charge you money. I passed you. I was there. I got money from other Christians. So what, am I robbing them? I'm robbing them because I didn't ask anything of you? He's saying, I did all of this because of the truth of the God. I didn't want to burden any of you. I wanted to just live among you and pastor you without putting any pressure on you in any way, shape, or form. And he said, why? Because so these people are telling Paul essentially that he doesn't really love you. So he's like, why? Because I don't love you? He says, no, nah, I'm going to undermine what these people are talking about. They are not on the same terms as me. So he calls them super apostles. And he ends with this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. He's making an important argument here, and he says a couple of phrases we need to zoom into. Look at verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says in verse 3 again. But I am afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So here is a church that Paul planted, pastored. He's traveling to do mission, mission in Achaia, and he's been gone. Some other people have said, hey, he's not the true apostle, and they're teaching something. And Paul is worried that even though they're genuine believers, they have all of the gifts of the spirit functioning that they could be deceived in the same way Eve was and that you're led astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Okay? Nothing spectacular. We know that that happens. We've seen Christians do that. Just walk away from a pure and sincere devotion and think that, you know what, I'm just doing what's best for me. Listen, you are, you, you are doing who you belong to, all of us. There's no neutral ground. Your actions, your thoughts, they reveal who you belong to. If people are uncomfortable with that, then you got to take that up with God. You're doing who you belong to. But then he says this in verse 4, which is a very interesting statement. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus from the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So he's saying that they are willing to believe a completely different truth from what they received from Paul. And listen to how he says it. If someone proclaims another Jesus, another way of salvation, you're listening. If you receive a different spirit, 
well, wait a minute, I've got the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, for if you receive a different spirit than the one you received. And then he concludes with, if you accept a different gospel. Out of those three, the second claim is of most important to us. Paul seems to be implying that you can receive a different spirit. You are, they were willingly receiving a different spirit than the one they received. So it's a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. This, this is actually not a word, but a phrase. Receive a different spirit is a phrase in the Greek, and the word is lambano. And it means to receive or take, to take hold of, to grasp, to acquire, to take up, to grab, to acquire, obtain, collect, select, come to believe, seize, take hold of. Paul's saying that you, a genuine Christian who received the Holy Spirit, are receiving a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. Here's what's more interesting about that phrase. Receive a different spirit. Receiving the spirit is the identical language used for the Holy Spirit. It's the same language. John 14, 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the world can't receive the spirit, but you receive the spirit. John 20, 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, after they said, what must we do to repent? Well, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, 14 through 17. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So Paul is not just using metaphorical language. He's indicating that people who received, grasped, accepted the Holy Spirit, he's concerned that they are receiving a different spirit, which means it's possible as a believer who has the Holy Spirit to receive a different spirit. We have no exegetical reason, whether you agree or disagree, to think that he's only talking about Corinth, but he is describing a process that can happen to any believer, and he's worried about it. And as a pastor here for 15 years, I have seen, Mike has seen, 
People have seen people receive a different spirit and then walk away from the Lord. Or struggle with things that used to be easily accessible as truth. I would even say since COVID, talking to people and they're asking me questions and saying stuff like, huh? Why do we need to come back to church? God is everywhere. If God is everywhere. Now, it may sound funny because the way I'm saying it, but that hurt. Because these were people that I love. These were people, some of these people I disciple. And I was like, well, God was everywhere in 2019 when you were coming to church every week. So what, that point was true in 2019. So this is why you're not going to come back? You're not going to go to any church? No, we just believe in the global, the universal church. I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means. Because God didn't say, hey, once you get saved, just do you until I get back. <laughs> just do you. The church is around everywhere. Just do you. It was like, no, you, you gather with people, like-minded believers. The words one another are 90-something times, 90, 86 times or something in the New Testament. The Bible assumes that people are going to live with one another. Paul's concerned that they are believing something that was satanic. And among those concerns, they were receiving a different spirit. And that spirit is satanic. Go down to verse 13. Here's what he says. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So the teaching, the super apostles that they're now listening to, or some of them tempted to listen to, are actually servants of Satan, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. So in summation of this passage, it's Satan's job to get us to believe in a different Jesus, receive a different evil spirit, and believe a different gospel. Paul, in essence, is saying that a believer, after receiving, having received the Holy Spirit, can receive a different spirit that is demonic. God doesn't stop you from believing a different truth, but he does protect those who continue to believe and live his truth. He's not going to force you. He's not going to. He's given you his word. He's given you community. But you can live a satanic life, open yourself up to demonic influence, and then like you've heard me say before from the scene of a movie that I, from Bronx Tales, you do that long enough, now you can't leave. Now you can't leave. I know people who profess to be believers. 
that are very arrogant, very proud. They think, no, I'm just confident. You know the difference between confidence and arrogance? Confidence is I'm certain, but I could be wrong. Arrogance is I'm right, and I think I'm better. I know people who think they're confident, and they're actually arrogant. Go to churches like this. Sit around. Evaluate if they agree with what's said, this and that. Evaluate what they like and don't like. And live that way for a long time. Don't demonstrate any real spiritual power, though. Don't do none of it. Their gift of the spirit is to be critical of others. If that's you, I think you are working for the enemy. If that offends you, talk to me. But I think that's working for the enemy. I'm the lead pastor of this church, as Mike likes to say. I've been here 15 years. I'm a confident dude. That's just who I am. But all the people who've seen me and been around me know I don't think I'm better than anybody. I'm certain of what I believe. And if people disagree with me, at least talk to them. I will often not entertain thoughts of how people feel, but show me from the scriptures why you think I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll come back up here and say it. I don't have a problem with that. But in this season, the enemy's rising. And he's at work. And our church has been affected. Is being affected. And so we're going to expose it. The greatest passage that I think that will help us answer this question is Mark chapter 9. And we'll pick up there next week. We have a lot more to discuss on this issue. We will pick up on Mark 9, which I think is the greatest passage to answer the question, what influence do cosmic powers of evil have on the Christian? And how should we process what we call demonic possession among believers? We'll start there next week in Mark 9. Let me close in prayer. Father, this morning, we walked through just a, a number of challenges to why it's difficult for us to, to make critical, exegetical sense of the question that people often ask or proclaim that Christians can be possessed by demons. Your word never in any verse does it say emphatically that a Christian can be possessed by a demon? And it does not say that a Christian cannot. You are actually silent on that direct question. So we make inferences from what we do see and read. And today's job, which I hope I honored you, Lord, in doing this, was to just present the challenges of why either way we can't even have categories like, well, it's possession versus oppression. Because in your word, when demon is attached as the prefix, that is the same word. And 
Those who were oppressed had to have demons cast out, and those who were possessed had to have demons cast out. So we are groping around here, Lord, as best as we can for your glory. Lord, next week we're going to get down into the real meat of it as we look at two and possibly one more passage that I think will shine a lot of light here. So for now, Lord, I thank you for what you allowed me to communicate. I pray that you would give me the grace and those who are willing to be here next week to hear the conclusion of what I think your, what your word says about this issue. But Lord, for today, I pray for all of those who are among us who profess to be believers, but by their actions and attitudes are really satanic. We may have gotten so used to them that we accept it. We may be afraid of how they'll respond if we challenge them. We may think it's not that big of a deal. But Lord, your word is clear. We don't have to practice all of sin to be of the devil. But there are some that many of us need to stop practicing. I pray, Lord, that today that your spirit would be at work. I pray for anyone who is in that place of apathy. You know, nowadays, Lord, we call everything a spirit. I don't know if there's a spirit of apathy, but I know there's definitely an attitude of one. And that doesn't honor you, Lord. I pray for those who may be here this morning watching online or will watch this in the days and weeks and months to come. But if there is a spirit of apathy or a spirit of, of complaining, a spirit of arrogance that they're better, Lord, I pray that you would at the very least they disagree with me, then give them the courage to look into your word for themselves and to evaluate how they are from what you say, not if they agree with what I say. I pray, Lord, that, that many of us are unknowingly giving the devil a foothold. And as we see next week, Lord, as we really break it down next week, I pray that you would help us to see from your word what our opportunity is to take seriously. But for now, Lord, use what was said today to stir the hearts of those who belong to you and to provoke the hearts of those who do not. And may everyone who is able make it here next week as we really dig into answering what is the actual role of cosmic powers of darkness over your children? And what role, if any, do they have in influencing us, our families, and so forth? For now, we know that we are the target of the enemy. And may we press in to you and then to each other for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, if we could take the banner down, we have uh, like 12 questions in, so we're not, 
receiving any other questions, and hopefully we will be able to get through those, but we will see. I'm going to so, just say next week for everything, and so no, no, bye. No, I'm okay, just playing good. Right, just communion? No, I'm, not going, yeah, no, I'm just playing good. All right. Um, wow, yeah, a lot of practical questions here. Um, I'm gonna be. I'm not saying to be funny. A lot of practical will be the next two messages. But go ahead, ask, and I'll see if we. All right. All right. So if you think your your whole life, if if you've been thinking that uh, during your whole life you've been honoring the Lord, and it turns out what you thought was honoring the Lord was in true satanic, do you think uh, such a person will still make it to heaven, or will God be upset with you even if your intentions? were to honor the Lord? If I, if I understand the question, I think that really depends on what the issue was that you thought wasn't satanic that was. So I think the thing that we have to understand is um, we have to remember who's going to be the one evaluating us when we stand before God. It's not going to be me trying to figure it out. and It's going to be God who knows the real you. He knows every motive, and he basically, he's going he's gonna to show you what your motives were. He's going to show all of us what our motives were. So we're not talking to a God who's going to do some guesswork and figure out if you're genuine or not. We're talking to a God who's going to reveal to you if he knew you and if you knew him. And by default, because he has that knowledge and information, he knows what was genuine error that he still will honor versus what was genuine error that he will not accept. And so I'm not going to sit here and answer in the affirmative or the negative or something like that. I think too many people do that, and I think you give false assurance when you shouldn't or you take away assurance when you shouldn't. I think if you're aware that you're living, you're thinking and acting, is not in line with the Lord, you still are here, you have an obligation and a responsibility to confess that to the Lord, ask for help where necessary. You know, you might want to have some confess to others and then fight to obey the Lord. I don't think anyone in this room watching online or will watch ever should think the matter is settled. They used to say your, your arms are too short to box with God. The matter is not settled to God, but you can make the matter settled to you by refusing, giving up, and not fighting through it. And while it may seem like you're doing the right thing, I assure you that you are not only vastly mistaken, but will be eternally remorseful for that decision. So I think it depends on the issue, but I think more importantly, God knows who's his. We don't. We act like we know who people are. So we be defending people, and you don't even know. You'll defend people that because you liked what they wrote in a book, and you have no idea if they really belong to the Lord or not. He does, so I leave that kind of stuff to him. So um, in terms of if you can have the Holy Spirit and be possessed by a demon, can you also have the Holy Spirit and live... Um, can you also have the Holy Spirit and sin live in you in such a fashion where you can have a desire to do good and not be able to carry it out? 
So, real quick, I have not said you can be a Christian and be possessed by a demon. I haven't said that. I just presented what the Bible said, that Paul said you can receive a different spirit. I have not answered that question. I'm not actually answering that direct question. Although next week, Will, things will become a little bit clearer as to what I think the Bible is actually saying, and I'll present that. So I want to make sure. I'm not, I haven't said that. So I'm not telling anyone you can be a Christian and be possessed by a demon because I don't know what you mean by possessed, to be honest, right? So I don't know what that means. So I'm not saying that. But the second part of the question, I think, more gets at, if I'm, not, if I'm understanding it correctly, the second part of the question gets more at, can, you, can a demon stop you from obeying the Lord if you're a Christian? I'm going to answer that more thoroughly next week, but I'll just say right now, I see no exegetical reason to believe that that can happen. I don't see it in the Bible that a, 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 a demon can stop you from obeying the Lord. I don't see any exegetical reason to believe that. But, no, nah, never mind, next week, next week. I'll just, no, I'll say this. Here's what I'll say. You can stop you from obeying the Lord and give yourself over to demonic influence. You can do that. A demon in and of its own can't do that, but you can you can give yourself over, and we'll talk about that next week. I'll just say that. Uh, and I so think some people have. I think some people have given themselves over. Does, um, does the revelation that the Bible makes no distinction between possession and oppression affect your view on Romans 7, verses 15 through 20? The I do not do what I wish to do, and therefore I don't think that passage at all has anything to do with demonic possession. I think Paul is making an argument in relation to a person's ability to obey the law fully versus uh, obeying Jesus. I think he's making a totally different theological point. So I think it's a good question, but I think those are two different things. That's like asking me who is better between Jordan and LeBron. I just think while the answer is obvious. Jordan, yeah, Jordan. <laughs> Well, the answer is obvious. I think we're talking about two different. But I don't want. I don't. I'm, we're about union, unity here. We're about unity. So, so I refuse. And if you don't like basketball, then you don't care. But it is an apples and oranges question, though I appreciate it. I don't think that's what Paul's. Paul's not even referencing anything that have to do with demonic possession. He's talking about the law. I will say this, and I've already taught this. I do not think, though, Paul was talking about himself and his inability to be able to obey God. I don't think that's what he was saying either. I think that's not what he's talking about. But that's I can see why you make that connection, because it's saying, I desire to do this, but I don't. I don't think he was saying that at all. Um, when, when do you feel the need gets to a point where a demon needs to be cast out of a person versus directing them to believe uh, the word and discipling them? Next message. I will not answer that question today. That is the meat of what we're going to talk about next message. All right. Um, we'll move right along then to these questions. This one is sort of a, is a twofer. 
Um, if all Christians' names are indefinitely written in the book of life, how is it that how is it possible that a Christian's genuine relationship with Christ be erased as they walk away from the faith? Wouldn't that mean that their name was never written in the book of life to begin with and their faith was never genuine? I think it's a good question. So I, I think when I think, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the challenge for us is we talk with authority of who a Christian is and who a Christian isn't. And if we're honest, we just don't know. Now, I'm not saying you can't have confidence. Like, I believe I'm a believer. I think there are many people in this room that are believers. But ultimately, the Bible says he who endures, conquers, or perseveres till the end will be saved. So you're still alive. You have not persevered to the end. You have not endured to the end. You have not. You're still alive. So you have to, I have to keep going. So I think we get confused because we act like everyone's a Christian. Now, I'm going to use this as an example. I'm not trying to talk about the dead and throw them under the bus, but I just want to use it as an example. Until Ravi Zacharias died, there isn't a person that didn't know him and what was going on personally that would have thought there's a possibility that he's not a Christian until after he died and a whole bunch of sexual immorality, very wicked things came out about what he was doing. I would have never wanted, I've watched that man, I'll still watch his videos, because truth, truth is not true because the person believes it. Like the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. I'm not throwing out, and if, if I need to watch a video and he has a great way to explain it, I'm going to watch it. People act like, oh, I can't, you know, everything he said is a lie. I was like, nah, he just didn't believe what he said. There's a difference, you know what I'm saying? Just because if you don't believe what you say doesn't mean it's not true. It's just you didn't believe it, you know? The Pharisees don't believe what they're saying, but it's still true. So Jesus said, listen to them. So I, I just think we talk like, well, if believers can't, but how do, whose name is in the book of life? Right. None of us really know that. Mm -hmm. So the way that you know that your name is written in the book of life is keep fighting till the end. And it's not flawless fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Hebrews 11 mm -hmm. has nothing but flawed faithfulness. Mm -hmm. I got three boys. I don't want any of them to be like Samson. Gideon, Japheth, and a bunch of other people. I mean, ultimately, I don't want to be like nobody but Jesus, not even their dad. Well, a couple things. There's some things on their dad. There's a couple, like two or three, be like me, but then the rest of it don't be like me. But it's like, I, but these people, God used as examples of faith that we need to be like, but their character was flawed. So I, I'm saying that to say, you know, we don't know whose name is written in the book of life. So, yeah, I think everyone whose name is written in the book of life belongs to Jesus, but I don't think, but everyone's name who's written in the book of life isn't going to have flawless character. I think it's crazy that God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 that, that David is a man after God's own heart. Now, either God didn't know that he was going to have sex with another woman, while a married woman, didn't have her husband killed, didn't smuggle it up and lie about it, or he knew about it and still said, I see something in him despite that evil. I think it's the latter. So, yeah, I don't think genuine believers will persevere to the end. But that doesn't mean that we won't have to do battle. We might, not have, we might have periods of time where we did receive a different spirit. I, the Bible, I didn't say that he says you can't come back from that, but you can, you can receive a different spirit. And that's a, that's a, a, a wild concept, which we'll talk more about next week all right uh based on what you said about thinking the things of god versus thinking the things of man 
Where, where does a man's conviction of his calling from God begin and this selfish ambition end? Where's, what's the, where's the distinction? I don't know. I have no idea because that's, I, that, that, that depends on the individual. It really depends. So I know for me, the last thing I wanted to be is a pastor. And I know when I stand before the Lord, he will acknowledge that. I am not here because I wanted to do this. I was avoiding this at all costs. I was like, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to do this. And when I came here year one, I didn't think I'd be here 14 years later. I was like, man, Lord. And so the Lord knows that. Like, for me, ministry is not selfish ambition. And if you've been around me, then you know I'm not selfishly ambitious. I don't ask the leadership team. I, don't, I come with things we should consider, but I'm not like, we got, unless I think like, oh, and I explain why, but I'll, so, but for some people, there are people I knew that were like, man, I just, I got to be a pastor. All I've ever wanted was to be a pastor. And some of them didn't make it. They were like, ministry or bust. I was like, man, don't make that literal, bro. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's hard to say, but I think, I think you can detect selfish ambition, though. Selfish ambition can be detected. I think, one, when you're, when you're hiding maturity, immaturity in your life, you know, when there aren't, you know, you're making, you're presenting yourself as something that you're not. I think that's selfish ambition. When you're offended at not getting a position or something, that's selfish ambition. Because if you really think it from the Lord, and it's like, all right, it's not what happened, but that's cool. I think when you're bitter at things, but not getting what you think the Lord. I honestly, I think all that whole wave of prosperous gospel ministry that talks about God's purposing you, all that purpose, all that stuff. I think it's going to create a generation of people who are going to be selfishly ambitious, who are waiting for God to give them their purpose. I ain't let nobody stop my purpose as if it's something outside of what the Lord has said in the scriptures. God's just waiting to give you. Well, Kurt, you found your purpose as a pastor. It was like, I don't know if it works like that. I don't think it works. I think you just be faithful to do what you think you're doing and you accept the doors that open. You accept the doors that close. You walk through what you walk through and the Lord blesses your faithfulness. And that's that. So a dude who had no desire to be a pastor has just begun year 15. Some dudes were so selfishly ambitious in ministry, they ain't last past year three. So it just depends. It's hard to know. I think but for yourself, I think you should be like, man, am I, am I offended? Do, I, do, I, do I want this and when I don't get it? Am I jealous of other people? That's real selfish ambition when you're jealous of other people because you see them getting put up or promoted or being in leadership. I know people who are jealous of other people because they're in closer relationship to me than I am with them. It's like, fam, I can't be best friends with everybody. Like, <laughs> I appreciate that Mike and I carry ourselves in such a way that people want relationship. I know people who have been offended, have left the church and been like, because, but I didn't, I didn't decide that this is like, oh, that's going to be my best friend right there. It doesn't work like that. It's just you just build with people over time. Things happen. You know, everybody isn't in a clique. These are just people they just been building with. They love and they hang with these people. So I just think, I think selfish ambition is a kid. This is why First Timothy 3, right, when he said don't promote a man, a convert too early because he'll be under the condemnation of the devil because I think selfish ambition kicks in. You start, I know pastors. I know a dude. I'll just say this because if he's watching, he'll know who he is, but nobody else would know. I know a dude who was a friend of mine that got offered 
a position in the church to be a lead pastor. I told him, he asked me, what do you think? What do you honestly think? And when people tell me that they're asked, because they know who I am, I'm going to be I'm a truth teller. So they're like, all right, Kurt, what do you honestly think? I was like, oh, you, you want me to tell you what I honestly think? <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm coming here. I wonder what you honestly think, because I know you're going to give it to me straight. So I said, I do not think you have the skill set to be a lead pastor. Not yet, but definitely not now. And I think if you take this position, you're gonna, it's not going to be good for the church or for you. He took that into consideration, took the job anyway. He was done less than four years later. Left that church. Church destructed, blew up. If there are any church planters or future pastors in this room, just by default, don't ever start a series on the book of Proverbs when you go to a church. Talk about Ephesians first. <laughs> My man showed up. It was just proverb this. And y'all, and it was just like, and they were like, whoa, what? And I just think you lose people. It's hard to get them back. Trust me, I've been here 15 years. There are people that I've known and cared for and loved that were like, and those things change. There are people that don't respect you no matter what you do. And it's just, it is what it is. So, selfish ambition is a killer, but it's not that hard to detect if you're willing to detect it. And all ambition is not from the Lord. Use James 3 as a God. Wisdom from above versus, that's a good God. Wisdom from above is submissive, it's Use James 3 as a guide. Uh, also, a reference to James, this question is, why does resisting the devil make him flee from you? Mm. Man, do I want to answer that question right now. <laughs> See, there's selfish ambition right there. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm working on my material. Do I want to answer that question? Uh, here's what I'll say. Here's how I'm going to answer the question. In 2 in Timothy 3, 5, he lists, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, he lists a category of people who are not going to make it to the kingdom, in the kingdom. And there's one phrase that he says. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So I'm going to answer that question with a question. What is the power of godliness, and how can you deny it? That's how I'm going to answer that question. And we'll talk about that in the next two weeks. All right. It looks like I'm going to uh, miss a couple of questions, and I apologize for that. But I'm going to ask you these two. Uh, the final two questions I'm going to ask, uh, I'll ask the first one now. Is there, is there biblical reason to believe that epilepsy is demonic possession slash oppression and should be viewed primarily through the lens of uh, a supernatural condition versus a medical diagnosis? Or is there a category for medical condition not necessarily directly linked to demonic attack? Yes to both questions. Let me explain what I mean. I think in right now, to, so, oh, man, this is a, there's a lot I can say right now. So 
the neurobiological category of trauma and all of these things that happen in our brain, that we're, these are not uh, historical categories that have always existed for all time. So the way we understand the brain, what happens in the brain, trauma, those things are late 19th century, early 20th century that developed in the last 125 years. So you can, uh, I mean, Sigmund Freud has a lot to do with how we understand how our brains develop and what's happening in our brains. The idea of trauma was not used in a, in a way that described what was happening to people until world wars and then you get pr predominantly in the Vietnam War, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. These are relatively new frameworks and so we have a neural biological understanding of things and a lot of them we diagnose as just simply psycho and you know neurological irregularities in the brain and there's there's some truth to that many of you know my son has autism i do not think that it's because he's possessed or is inhabited by a demon i think there are brain things that happen to the brain that those happen and so epilepsy and all those things can fall into that category but these are relatively newer phenomenon in the way that we understand these things, and you could say it's the advent of science, and that would be true, but you could also say it's the dismissive nature of the supernatural. So in the Bible, Jesus cast demons out of people who had epileptic seizures. Um, in fact, the story we're gonna look at next week is, is true, that that was an epileptic seizure that was happening. So that does happen. I, do, I think we quickly make everything neurobiological and not supernatural, and so I think there's a place to, for both, to explore the possibility of both. I don't think it's an either or, but I don't think we should dismiss one and not the other until we investigate. And some of us just don't know how to do that, so we just, it's easier to, because this is the thing, I don't know if you know this, when you get a diagnosis, it's not telling you why you're this way, it's a diagnosis describing what you say you do. So if I say, I have, you know, if I get a diagnosis that I have disassociative identity disorder, they're gonna say that based on what I tell them, my, 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 my reactions are, how I do things, and then they're gonna think through the DSM manual, right, the manual of, of and they're gonna figure out, okay, this is what that is, and this is what you have, and then we just accept that as that. They're not explaining why it has that, why you're this way. It just says, oh, okay, this is what you're describing, this is who you are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring this up next week and explain what I mean. You know, I'm going to read you something next week to make the point. But it's not so all the diagnosis, the neurobiological, whether it's bipolar, whether it's this, this, or whether it's the ADD, all those things are largely, I'm not saying they're not true of people, but they're largely diagnoses that are describing what you're saying is happening to you. But they're not telling you why this is happening. Is it because there's a chemical in the back? So they'll give you something to try to stop you from having that or to calm you down if there's anxiety or whatever the case may be. But it's not necessarily why this is happening. That doesn't happen as often as we think. We just, that's why sometimes you go to the doctor and they don't even know what it is. Yeah. You ever get frustrated like, man, I went to three doctors and they still don't know. And it's just like, because they, sometimes they don't know. You're describing something that they haven't really encountered. They don't have a category for it. So I think when it comes to that, I think Christians should have in their minds those categories. I think we can accept 
the scientific categories, but we can also accept the supernatural categories. And I think if we're willing, we should explore both of those. We should not cave to anything. Because in the, in the, in the, to be honest with you, in the Bible, think about all the stuff that those people went through, right? Everything. There were traumatic moments. In, in Hebrews 11, 35 through 40, it says that these people were beaten, sawn in two, in sackcloth and ashes. They were all of those things. Now, I'm pretty confident, based on my knowledge of what was happening then, there were no therapists then. There was no medication then. There were none of the categories that we use today that we lean on. And they were able to persevere by faith and obedience in the Lord, despite being under significant traumatic circumstances. So these things that we're talking about, they're newer than we give them credit for. There's a lot I could say more on that. And I want to say, but I want to wait. So you touched on the second question, so I'll, I'll let that be. But I will say, I think the other the questions that I saw come in that remain, I think I'm pretty confident I've seen people here. Um, if, so if you submitted a question uh, that you need answered, please go and see Pastor Kurt after he dismisses. All right. Having said that, let's grab our – we get to do this every Sunday – I remember when me and Mike first talked about this and we came to the leadership team with it, and we thought we should do this every week. We used to do this once a month. And I remember thinking, man, if we do it every week, we might get tired of it. It might just lose its value. And I know for me personally, the value's only increased. And I'm grateful that we do this every Sunday because it brings us back to the center or what we used to hear called the main thing. That no matter what we talk about, no matter where we are, the main thing for all Christians is that Jesus, he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And those two things alone, because of faith in him, have given us, at least in this life, a hope and a conviction to persevere to the end, which we will find out that our names are written in the book of life. But we celebrate each week the reality that his body was broken on the cross, and it was broken before the cross. Those 39 lashes were a part of the wrath of God. They were a part of it, but the, but the conclusion of that wrath was on the cross. And so by his grace, many people have multiple ways and multiple wafers Allow us to be reminded of this truth as we eat this together.